welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. To get the latest updates or to watch this week's message, visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Hey, well, today we have a really fun opportunity. A lot of you already know it, but we have a guest teacher with us today. His name is Reward Sabanda. And uh, you, can, you can clap a little bit, but I'll, I'm going to introduce him first. I'm going to introduce him. That way you guys can properly inter- uh, welcome him in just a second. But Reward, uh, it, this, let me give this a quick story of how we even know each other. We met each other last year on a conference that was happening in London for Alpha, but also like a creative church conference. And we had this little connection. It was like, hey, we feel like the Holy Spirit's in this. We should stay We should stay friends, right? And so it's led to now today him being here in our church to, pull, to sow into you. He speaks all over the world. He does a lot of amazing ministry. God is using him in some powerful ways. He does stuff with World Vision as a senior advisor. He also does, uh, he's been on staff at Upper Room uh, in Dallas. He's in Dallas, him and his wife and his new little baby. Yeah, how old? Six months. Six months, all right. And then, uh, but they recently, recently just moved to Southern California to join Saddleback and uh, be on staff there. And so it's a pretty big privilege and honor to have him. So, reward, would you come? Would you give it up for reward? Welcome today. We're so glad you're here, man. We love it. Thank you. We've already prayed, so just, yeah, here we go. Come on. Have fun, man. Have fun. (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) Man, OKC community, how are you guys doing this morning? Wait, 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 wait. Listen, listen. So I just came from spending a week uh, speaking at a uh, Methodist conference. And it was incredible, and what God is doing there is phenomenal. But I was excited because I was like, I'm about to go hang with my Oklahomies because uh, <laughs> you feel me? They're loud like I am. I'm African, so everything is, you know, I'm a hollaback preacher. Come on, somebody. <laughs> so if y'all don't match the energy, you know what I'm talking about, I'm like, so let's try it one more time. Good morning, OKC community. How you guys doing? <laughs> there we go. All right, now. I feel at a home. First things first, man, I just want to honor your leadership, your pastors. Come on, somebody. Oh, my goodness. Listen, uh, you know there's some people that uh, you meet and you just know that God is doing something incredible. So, and, and they are just phenomenal people. And the whole time you get around them, you're, like, you're telling yourself, you're like, don't be weird, don't be weird, don't be weird. You know, be cool, be cool, be cool. That's really what happened. Um, we met in London, and God just knit hearts. And um, I was just blown away by how they loved people. And uh, when everyone else was taking off their pastor hats, because sometimes as pastors we go to spaces to not be pastors, they were picking up every hat and putting it on their head. You know, just loving people throughout the process. So I just want to say, hey, uh, you guys have been blessed by the type of leadership that God takes and elevates, and they become a pastor to a generation. So you're the first fruits of that. So don't be the guy, you know what I'm saying, who is the last to the party. Start appreciating them. Start praying for them. Start sending them the good emails, you know what I'm saying, and uh, all that. So if you don't mind, could we just stand up and honor your pastors for who they are? And don't stop until Pastor Tim blushes. Come on. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Pastor Tim, thank you so much. No, you guys stay standing if you don't mind. But there we go. You guys are going to be standing with me the whole time. We're working together. Let's go. 
But no, I truly, truly appreciate you and, um, and the first lady. I'm going to call her the first lady. <laughs> She's like, don't do that. It's going to stick. But um, I truly, truly appreciate what God has done was they were there when we started the conversation about going to Saddleback. And uh, God has just made you a part of Hearts. Thank you so much for having me. God bless uh, you guys and the entire crew. Here's what we're going to do because I'm in Oklahoma. And um, here we, one of the gifts that God has given this state is the gift of common sense. Come on, somebody. And uh, it is not common in all the other 50 states, I can promise you that. But common sense mandates that we stand up for the things that we honor. Come on, somebody. And there's nothing more honorable than the Word of God. The Bible, the book of Genesis says, God said, let there be, and there was. And every single time God has said, things have changed in my life, in my situations, in my surroundings. And so whenever he speaks, I come to attention. I stand up to honor, and I love that it is a value that you carry, not just as a people, not just as a house, but as a community and a culture. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, I want us to read this together, a family style. And um, it is going to be uh, Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. I'm going to count to three. We're going to read it as loudly as we can. I'm going to say a quick prayer just to cover my bases, and then we're going to jump into the conversation. Is that cool? One, two, three, let's go. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Can you just put your hand over your heart um, with me for a second? And just say, come Holy Spirit. Just say it one more time. Say, come Holy Spirit. We invite you, Holy Spirit, because if you don't come, then nothing else matters. And if you do come, then nothing else matters. So just come, Holy Spirit. Come, blessed teacher. Come, spirit of truth. Come and give us a revelation of Jesus. We just pray, Father, that the word mixed with faith would bring profiting in the hearts of every single hearer. Father, not ideas, not concepts, not thoughts. The counsel of heaven finding perfect expression through those lips of clay. Meeting with hearts postured to receive from you. And at the end of it, may we have an encounter. We ask and we thank you. You're the CEO of this meeting, Holy Spirit, so do what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. High five the person next to you. Say, let's roll. And you may be seated. So as you guys can probably tell, um, 
I am, I, we've been based in Dallas for the last 15 years. I was a part of a house. They started as a community of people that just loved God. And they just went after the Lord. And um, God does what he always does, right? Whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he shows up. And he establishes his kingdom in the middle. And now the beautiful thing about God's kingdom is that it is an ever-increasing kingdom. So as long as you keep uh, the kingdom in Christ central to your relational dynamic, to your communal dynamic, whatever that looks like, growth is uh, just a natural out outflow of what that essentially looks like. So God blessed us in that community. Over 10 years, it became to be known um, as a house called the Upper Room. And what I've loved about the Upper Room, uh, where I was associate pastor before moving on to uh, be a, a teaching pastor at Saddleback, was that everything about who we were was uh, postured towards encounter. Everybody say encounter. Now, encounter is the most natural thing to us because we were beings created out of and for encounter. See, where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. If you don't know the purpose of a thing, you will abuse it even with the best of intentions. See, the reason there is so much abuse primarily of who we are is because we are out of touch with our true purpose as humanity. So we will abuse ourselves and by proxy the people that are around us. Because hurt people hurt people. So the reason that the world exists in the state that it is, is because as individuals we have lost touch with the purpose of God for who we are. And I love that uh, Pastor Tim has, has been like, hey, we're a community that goes after God. And right now, uh, we are going to call this particular series uh, After Revival. And we're going to talk about uh, the fire of God and all of these things. But before we can understand, before we can get to a space or a place to where we ask God for revival, we need to understand why we exist. Because even if God were to send revival, if we do not know the purpose, first of ourselves and for that revival, we will abuse it and we will put our hands on it and we will taint and mar God's glory. So See, God is a God of principle and God never wastes anything as the parables of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus will show you. So before we can ask God to pour it out, we have to be the vessels worthy of that revival and the outpouring and vessels worthy of being entrusted with the fire of God that can completely shift a generation. So I want to start my conversation by going back to the ancient paths in the book of Genesis where God, where we find God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, this beautiful, the triune council of the Godhead going Dr. Strange on all things that we see. He's speaking and he's Things are coming alive and things are being created. And he's doing all those things and he crafts the perfect ecosystem and the perfect microcosm. And everything is good. So he will create something and then he would look at that thing and he would see that his imprint, his divine imprint was on that thing. And therefore he'd step back and say that thing is good. And by virtue of that thing being good, that thing was not just good in the fact that it was self-contained, and that everything that God has created has been self-propagating for generations and will never fail. But because God is good and expressive, it became good in its expression. 
Therefore, flowers are good. They look good and they smell good. And the oceans are good. They have praxis and purpose. But also, it's a delight to watch and splash around. Everything that God created, he saw it was good because he was good. Because remember, God is the cause. We're the effect. God is the cause. Creation is the effect. And the effect always mirrors the cause. And the entire premise of my conversation today is based on that simple thing. God is the cause and we're the effect. And the effect always mirrors the cause. So he creates, and he creates this perfect garden and earth and everything. Think about this. I'm not talking about crawls. Like, I'm talking about like beautiful, right, uh, birds singing before the fall and, uh, you know, all this. There's no creepy things like spiders back then. At least I don't think and everything. And everything is just perfect. It is the perfect garden. He creates it, but then he does something which my wife also does, which is whenever she is, uh, and uh, I'm telling y'all, the more people are coming to that event, or the more important that event is like Christmas and Thanksgiving, the longer it is going to take my wife to prepare food. I never know how time applies to every other mealtime except that one time on Thanksgiving, right? Food is never, ever, really, ever ready on time, except if you buy it. Come on, somebody, right? But my wife always does this thing to where whenever she's cooking, she'll cook and everything, and then she'll call me down. She's like, food's ready. And I'm like, I've done this before for six years now. I know it's not ready, but I will still come down because I'm a good husband. Come on, happy wife, happy life, y'all. I'm a genius, all right? If you're coming for marriage night, you know what I'm saying? Just take that one tip. All right, that's that, that happy wife, happy life. Come on, somebody. But you come down, and she'll be like, hey, taste this, and I'll taste it. And she'll be like, what do you think? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then she'll taste it like, no, no, it's missing something. So she'll take like a little bit of paprika and sprinkle that. And she'll be like, hmm, taste this. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what he was missing. Can we eat now? She's like, no, it's missing something. And she'll take a sprinkle of salt and do that. And whenever I think of, 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 of creation, I feel like that's what God did. So at the end of it, he's like, hmm, it's good because I'm good. As a matter of fact, it's perfect because I'm perfect, but it's missing something. So I imagine the council of the Godhead then huddling together and going, you know what? What if we made man in our image and according to our likeness? And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're like, yeah, that's a good idea. And, and, and I know you, you probably look at your neighbors and uh, some of the people that you've lived with and maybe even think about your ex and you're like, that was not the most brilliant idea of the Godhead to create. But I promise you, That it is beautiful because what God did is then he took who he was, the essence of who he was, and he created humanity out of it. We go back to this part in Genesis 1, verse 26. Um, It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Everybody say image. Image. And according to our likeness. Everybody say likeness. And let them have dominion. So the first time I read this, right, because I'm not as smart, you know, as some of you guys here in Oklahoma, English is literally my fifth language. And so it was one of those things I was like, wait, does this look like a redundancy? Why did it say image and likeness? Is it the same thing? Is this for emphasis? And then I did uh, what most people uh, of us should do. I went back to the original languages and I started looking at it. And I noticed that these are very different because the word image is the word telem. Everybody say telem. And the word likeness is the word damuth. Everybody say damuth. And those are completely different. 
See, because um, English and Hebrew, uh, I'm talking about the Queen's English and not American. How many of y'all know there's a difference between American and English, right? English, Shakespeare. American, Beavis and Butthead. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Snoop Dogg, Ebonics. I'm kidding. I'm uh, American. But, but you know what I'm talking about. There's a very difference because America is the youngest civilization, so we communicate for utility. We're still building. We're like, all right, get to the point already. All right, let's hear. Communicate what you're saying. But all these other older civilizations have been built. Therefore, people have time for communion. See, language in its most rudimentary form is an agent of communication, getting a point across. But in its most mature form, language is an agent of communion. So we sit down and through language we gain intimacy. That's where romance and poetry and all of those things, those are the things that people who have finished building their civilization have the luxury of getting into. So when I went that and I was like, why is it? So a direct translation of this from Hebrew, right, to um, the Queen's English to American is this. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The word image there is form. Everybody say form. And according to our likeness, and the word for likeness there is function. Everybody say function. So basically the brilliance of the Godhead when he came up with this concept of humanity was let us make man in our form to execute our function. And, when the, the, and within the parameters of their purpose, then they will have dominion. So the divine idea of God is let us make man in our form to execute our function and within that, let them have dominion. And as they step out into the fields that I've placed them into, in dominion, then it says God bless them and say, be fruitful and multiply. So if you exist in a space or in a place where you're dominating and you're dabbing on the haters and you're straight up owning every space that you are in, you can literally reverse engineer that to where uh, like fruitfulness and multiplication comes from being in a particular space. And when you're in that space, then you find and, and give expression to your purpose because you are made in the image of God. See, that's why there's a man called Michael Jordan. Come on, somebody. And uh, he was the goat, man. I mean, he's not Dirk Nowitzki, but you know what I'm saying? It is what it is. But he was incredible. The goat, greatest of all time in basketball. I hear he stepped over into baseball, and nobody really remembers those years. Why? Because I genuinely believe, even though he's a phenomenal athlete, but there is a space of purpose where when you're in that particular place, God comes and finds and has fellowship with you. And because of that, the very ground itself produces for you. The man literally steps into the basketball court and he sweats money, right? Where is this? It is simply from the exact point of Genesis. As long as Adam was in the garden, the garden would produce for him. There was no labor and God would come and have fellowship with him. And I feel an aspect of restoration is when you find your purpose and you step into it. Have you ever seen Pastor Tim and First Lady in their element when she's up here and leading worship? It's like heaven responding, right, to the fact that she taps into eternity and she plucks the very melodies of heaven. When this man is, I'm not even talking about, he's a phenomenal communicator, we know that. But his element is you guys. When he's among and walking and high-fiving people and taking, I'm like, wow. He didn't have to go to leadership school to learn that. He simply stepped into his purpose. And God found fellowship with him. So we're made in the form of God to execute the function of God. 
What is the form of God? See, I kick out over this stuff, y'all, because this is incredible. The form of God is love, right? Go to 1 John, the man who literally laid his head on the bosom of Jesus. He heard the heartbeat of heaven, and the heartbeat of heaven was love. Love, love. God is love. God has love. God has always existed in love. See, I love what the Bible says. It says God so loved the world that he gave, right? So love is expressive. Love is a verb. I can question whether you love or not based on that which you give. As a matter of fact, um, I still have a very abusive relational dynamic with this thing called the Dallas Cowboys. Come on, somebody. We have not won anything since I had cognition, but every single year you can look at my pocketbook and tell that I love them because whenever I love, I give, right? How many of you guys know people who are like as stingy as all get out, but the moment they fell in love, they make it rain, baby. You know what I'm talking about? I was like, you? He bought you what? That's one of the stingiest people. Why? Because remember, God is love and God so loved that he gave. Then he created us, Right? In his image and according to his likeness, therefore, whenever we love, we give. It's the exact same thing, right? When you look at the book of Revelation in the throne room, there's always music and worship going on. And then he creates us from that place. The ground zero of creation is the throne room. Therefore, you will never meet a single person that does not like music. Now, there are specific genres that we really do not like. Come on, I'm sorry, Oklahoma, but I do not get country music. I feel like all the songs are the same. But I love you guys, though. You know what I'm saying? I love y'all. But it's one of those things. Heavy metal, the screaming stuff? I mean, I, I don't think that's from God at all. But hey, who am I to judge what it is? You know, if that's how you get down with Jesus, that's how you get... Man, I can't even say that. Scratch that. You know what I'm saying? But everybody loves music because we come from what it is. Because cause and effect, that whole relational dynamic. So the Bible talks about how God has always existed in love. Therefore, everything about the ethos, if 2020 taught us anything, it was the fact that the world needs love. And across color and culture and context, whenever people are loved, they come into the fullest expression of who they are. Why? Where do we get that? We get that because the very core of the helix of our DNA is around love. Another thing is, see, it's God the Father, the whole the dynamic of the concept of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and the whole, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, eternal, uncreated, have always existed in community. God has never existed outside the parameters of community. And because of that, we as humanity can never fully live outside the context of community. Before 2020, we all had this myth to it's like, I'm an introvert. I can't stand people until you're shut alone for like a year and a half. Well, this was Oklahoma. Oklahoma and Texas for all of 21 days. And afterwards, we're like, pandemic what? <laughs> nah, forget that. That's political. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we're getting out of here. But for the rest of the world, right, they were in a pandemic. And for a year and a half, they were like, I may be introverted, but I need to be around other people. Where do we get that? It's because God has always been coming. As a matter of fact, you do know that um, even the Roman Empire, the most depraved empire that ever existed. Y'all, listen, 
The Roman Empire was so twisted that they would take people, enslave people, feed them to lions for their entertainment. That was their Netflix and chill, y'all. They would watch people being eaten by lions. How twisted is that? They would crucify people. They would boil people in oil alive. They were messed up. But even the Roman Empire thought that the worst form of punishment, when you were truly an enemy of the empire, what they would do is they would take you and they would take you to a deserted island and just strand you there. Because it's almost like they understood that the worst punishment that you can inflict on an individual is to take them outside of community. Because community is what we're made in. That's why the Bible says, do not give up the assembly of the brethren. That's why everything that we do has to be done within the context of community. That's why we feel the way we do when we gather here. When you walk in there and there's free coffee and there's donuts. It's not free coffee. It's not the coffee and the donuts. Come on. Even though that's the reason I would come to a church. Come on, somebody. Right? Hey, wherever the food is free, there I'll be. I have no shame when it comes to that. Right? Food is my love language, y'all. I'm that guy. Take that. But hey, it is the power of community when we all come together. Where do we get that? We get it from him. So the form of God is love. The form of God is community. As a matter of fact, there is this man. He was one of um, the Cappadocian fathers, and his name was St. Gregory of Nazianzus. Now, he was a stylistic orator, right? One of the best. I mean, this boy had the gift of gab. You know what I'm saying? He could paint not just words, but worlds with his words. He was that guy. So back in the day, and he was also a theologian. So people came up to him and they're like, hey, based on theology, based on revelation, based on uh, divine inspiration, we want you to craft an image for the relational dynamic between the Trinity." You've talked about this, right? He was on the front lines of pneumatology or the study of the Holy Spirit. So he was there. He was one of us, y'all. He was like us. You know what I'm saying? Crazy worshiper and everything. Come, Holy Spirit. He was all of those things. And the rest of the people were like, all right, give us a visual framework for this relational dynamic between the Trinity. And so he came up with something, and he called it the perichoresis. And what that is, is he said, if you were to step back and take a macro perspective on the relational dynamic of the Trinity, it's almost like they're in a dance. When you look at them, you see the dance. And he's like, when you look at how Jesus talks about the Father, and the Father sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit reveals the Son, it's almost like it's this beautiful dance of, of honor and deference and all these things. And he's like, when you look at the Creator, there is that dance. And how you know that that's a fact is when you look at creation, you cannot not see the dance. You see the dance on the leaves when the wind blows through. Come on, somebody. When you look at a flame, how it goes up and everything, it's a dance. The tides, the currents, and everything about creation is dancing because God is the cause and creation is the effect. Therefore, the effect always mirrors the cause. And so he does all of these beautiful things and he does all of this. And then right there at the center, he creates us and he invites us into the center of his love and the center of his community and the center of his affection and the center of his creation. Because God created you for himself. See, think about this. Every other thing that God creates, right, which is an imprint and an expression of who he is, is expressive. See, God is the most expressive being there is. He just exudes love and goodness and kindness. He is expressive. Then look at all of nature, right? Flowers, 
right? Fragrances, expressive, right? Beautiful colors, expression. You look at the wind, expression, anything natural, right? Use your sanctified imagination to think anything created is expressive. But his greatest act of love is everything else. He speaks to it. He speaks to the land and he says, hey, produce the plants. He speaks to the water and he says, produce fish. He speaks to the atmosphere and says, produce birds. He didn't create those. He's spoken to the elements and the elements produce those. But when he came to us, he said, let us make. He speaks to intentionality. And how you know that God was intentional is he makes this being and he puts them in the middle of an expressive world and he makes this a being of impression. What am I talking about? The five senses, right? Your modalities for interfacing with the world around you. Touch, taste, right? Smell, like sight, hear, like all of those. What are they? Are they inputs or outputs? They're inputs, right? Light comes in, that's how you see. Sound comes in, that's how you hear. You know what I'm saying? Like smells come in, that's how. Do you realize how intentional God was about loving you to where he makes everything else around you expressive and he makes you as a being of inputs? He's like, I just want to create a being that is positioned and postured and created to dwell in the middle of my goodness and my provision and my opulence. And then at the end of it, he takes himself, the most expressive of all beings, and he visits man in the cool of the day. We were never created to exist outside the parameters of receptivity and reception. A God who loves us. And I'm going deep on this foundation because I want you to understand that revival is in essence a recalibration of bringing all things back to that space to where creation, and I'm talking about us, exists in a place where we love, enjoy, and we experience God. See, at its core, if you don't get anything else I say, get this. At its core, revival is recalibration. That's why we lost everything in the garden. We got driven out, and he sent the most valuable thing that he had to literally bring the world back to what it was. See, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 21, that is the, the, the form of God is that. It's what we are made in the image of love and community and acceptance and everything that the world is dying for. And here's the function. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 21 it says, now all things, everybody say all things, are of God. They belong to God. They were made by God. He has creative rights, creation rights over all of them. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So the first thing that is restored, right, is us. He restores us to himself, to a space to where he is all sufficient for us, in us, and through us. And we're back in this space of perichoresis and communion where we enjoy God and he enjoys us. And whenever you step out into the world, right, when God entrusts you with a revival, the one purpose of all revival is to bring a world which is disconnected from God back into a space of communion with him. When he knows that our hearts are aligned to restoring all things to their original intent, then he can entrust us with revival and with his fire. 
If we do not understand and we do not know how to be good stewards of ourselves and of this truth and this dynamic, how can he entrust us with his all-disrupting presence? We all know that every father knows that my son right now is six months old. I desire to give him the world. Ooh, man, I cannot, listen, it's selfish, but I'm going to say it. I cannot wait for my son to see how cool I am. <laughs> I mean, I look at him and I'm like, bro, you got it cool. You won the dad lottery. You know what I'm talking? I can't wait to introduce him to Star Wars. You know what I'm saying? I got him likes. I cannot wait to do it. But there's specific gifts I can give it. To him, because I can't give him a car, I can't give him anything that I know is going to be destructive to him. So, could it be that the reason that revival tarries is because, as a matter of fact, Jesus said this. Jesus said to the disciples, He's like, Man, I have so many things I want to give to you, but you cannot bear them. The dynamic is always the same. That's why He's like, Man, I can't, I, I, you know. I can't, I can't do this with y'all no more. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the Father and I'm going to ask him to send the Holy Spirit. And the primary expression and revelation of the Holy Spirit, which means it's the most important, he's a teacher. He comes to reveal specific things to us so that we can carry that revelation into whatever context we are. And when we bring life to that particular context, that is the essence of where revelation uh, or, or, or begins. Where revival begins. See, this past um, five days, uh, I was at a conference. It was a Methodist Wesleyan conference uh, put on by the, the, the Asbury team. And how many of you guys heard of the Asbury outpouring? So the guys who were there when the worship broke out were the ones that were leading uh, worship. Uh, the leadership, the people that were in there. The, like, that team was the team I got to hang out with. And I'm over here like fanboying like a little girl, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to be cool and trying to act like and everything. And I'm asking all those questions. And from the worshipers to the people that served as the ushers, and every, everybody says this exact same thing. Like, what is revival? Is it the weighty presence of God? Is it repentance? Is it like, they're like, oh, yeah, it's all of those things. But you know what it is? At the heart of it, you cannot divorce the love of God and his longing for people. Like it was weird because it would come out in the worship. See, I mean, the, the mark of every revival is holiness, right? But what holiness does is holiness is exclusivity. The word holy means set apart, not from, even though that's a part of it, but unto. See, I think the greatest analogy for holiness is what happened when uh, I fell in love with my wife and I spit game on her, and she couldn't resist this African game. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, girl, I want to be your reward. She's like, oh, my goodness, he's got game. But the moment I saw she was falling on it, you know what I'm saying? I said, I want to be yours exclusively. So I got the government involved, and I made her sign a paper that she'll take care of me even if I was sick and all of this. Now she's stuck with me for the rest of our lives. And for good measure, I added the Bible on there as well, right? But the thing about it is if I live my life, Coming into my wife's presence every single day and saying, you know what? I am so glad that, you know, this union set me free from, a tea, from, from Trisha and it, it, it set me free from Mary and it set me free. And I'm constantly coming into her presence and being thankful for that, which, which I was, first of all, it wouldn't be every day. It would be two days. After two days, 
I wouldn't exist anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Because the essence of separation and sanctification and being set apart isn't what you're set apart from, but set apart unto. And the essence of holiness and revival is it takes away everything that mitigates the emotions and the affection of God. And remember, the picture is always a restoration to the garden, right? To that space and to that relational dynamic. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. It says, he reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. See, because remember, sin, what sin is, is broken relationships. That's all sin is. Broken relationships with God, broken relationships with ourselves, broken relationships with, with, with the earth, and broken relationships with, which is, with each other. The side effect of sin, the symptom of sin will always be broken relationships. So when God comes in the essence of revival, he comes to reunite the world to himself. This is what it says. It says, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word and the work of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At Asbury, and when you do a history of all revivals, revival broke out when people stopped focusing on revival, but focusing on the revived or the people that would be revived. And when we stop, when we shift our focus, when this house is primed for revival, when I was looking at the values and extravagant love, that's revival right there. It says we're a presence for our city. I was talking to Brother Charlie, like a father in this house and everything. He was like, hey, right here, all we wanted to do was love God and love the people around us. And God has blessed us and made it a movement. That's what revival is. And I come here just to remind you of the simple fact that if you understand the why, there is nothing God will not give you. Oh, this is a kingdom principle, y'all. It's not even just talking about revival. It simply says this, right? 1 John 5 says, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask for anything, here's the caveat, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know, and the word know there is idle, which means a tangible seeing. So we, we experience the things that we've asked for because we ask in accordance to his will. So before we can contend and pray to God for revival, we have to understand what his will for revival is. And his will for revival, his will for redemption, is a recalibration of all the earth and perspectives and bring us into a place to where still in the cool of the day, the garden which now dwells on the inside of us becomes a dwelling and a resting place for the Lord so that the world can find rest when they're drawn into the gravity of our sonship. It's basic Romans 8. It says all creation was subjected to, 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 to frailty and to futility, not out of, 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 of any, because he subjected it in hope, because creation would find its glorious expression of its purpose in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Why? Because we're open heavens, we're thin spaces and walking atmospheres of encounters. 
It's in our human nature. How many of you guys have gone to a party and it was lame because it was a gathering of Enneagram 1s and 3s, and then the Enneagram 7 steps into that place, and all of a sudden it becomes a party because they drew all the boredom into the gravity of their personality and their sonship. Come on, somebody. That's what Pastor Tim did when he stepped into London. Every room that he was in, he was like, all right, the cool kicks are here. You know what I'm saying? First lady's here. It's about to be a party. And he says, hey, take that very principle into every space that you step into and bring the presence of God and be the proxy of revival. And that's what Jesus did. The Bible says how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about in doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So basically God just put on, Jesus just put on a Punisher t-shirt and put the hurting on every force of darkness there was. And we have the kingdom of God now dwelling on the inside of us. The kabod, the weighty presence of God. And then he has given us hands. Whenever we stretch forth our hands, when we see sickness, we say be healed. Our hands become an extension of the scepter of the kingdom. And his kingdom comes over that particular person. And then they come to a tangible encounter with the fact that God loves them. Everything, every objective metric out there, listen to me, every objective metric out there speaks and testifies to the simple fact that God does not love his people, that God has abandoned his people. Every objective metric from earthquakes to wars to shootings, to everything about that. Somebody can look at this and say, hey, if there is a God, why is this happening? They can even point to Christians and say, if there truly is a God who loves you, why did you lose this person to cancer? Or why did this happen? When we look at the facts, they testify to the fact that God has abandoned his people. But how many of you guys know that there's a difference between the facts and the truth? See, it's a fact that cancer kills, but the truth is that Jesus heals. And whenever the facts encounter the truth, the facts have to bow because they are inferior reality to the truth. And so that's why Jesus comes on the scene and he comes and he says, hey, you know what? Don't believe me for anything that I say because think about it this way. Do you guys understand that when it comes to all religions, our religion makes the least sense in the realm of sense? It literally starts with a talking snake, and the rest of it just it gets weirder from there. Come on, somebody. But that's why we were never called to convince people with our words, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. To where we come into a space and we're like, I don't know if God, I don't know where he was when you went through that. I don't know where he is when it comes to the war. But listen to this and then you tap into the spirit. Hey, the Lord is telling me right now that you have a mother and her name is Mary and that she's sick. And God says he's healing her right now. And as a matter of fact, you've been trying to go to college but haven't had the funds. So right here, I want to sow this into your life. And as a matter of fact, you've always had this thing on your knees. So here, the count of three, in the name of Jesus, be healed. One, two, three, bam. Go ahead, test out your knees. They don't hurt anymore. Hey, oh my gosh, is that a call from your mother? What you say? She says she just got healed and everything, and everything that you say. And then at the end of it, you're like, all oh, that happened because God loves you. You are lost because you were his beforehand. Nobody goes shopping at the lost and found, except if you're a weirdo, right? You only go there to reclaim that which is yours. So the lost are called the lost because they belonged to him. And our greatest witness is to carry the power 
and step into place. That's why Jesus said, hey, you guys have all the theology that you need. You have been walking with God himself for three years. But hang on now. Wait until you are endued with power before you can step out and be my witnesses. Because the world doesn't need a religion. The world needs an encounter with the love of God expressed in power. And once you understand that, then God can trust you with his power. But ultimately, he can trust you with his fire. See, here's what I love about fire as I'm closing. Um, man, I, man, you guys are fun. I could keep going for hours. I'm African, y'all. Hey, I'm about to slip into African time, but I can tell Pastor Tim's eye over here is like, this is not Zimbabwe, baby. Come on. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. <laughs> there we go. But, 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 but here's the thing. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, verse 28 to 29, since we're receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. When you read the Bible, right, the theme of fire is inextricable. It is the number one analogy for all things that pertain to us. That's why even the symbol of revival is fire. And so I want to speak really briefly on the, the physics of fire, right? Because when you think about it, when it comes to etymology or the art of learning specific things, we learn through examples, alliteration, right? That's why the word like is irreplaceable in any linguistic dynamic because you cannot communicate without using examples and analogies and like um, I, used, I play this game whenever I'm on uh, American time, you know what I'm saying, where I'll have somebody come up and I'll whisper something and I'll say, hey, can you uh, explain or what I told you without using the word like or trying to do that? So basically I'll be like, hey, explain a train without using the word like or without using an analogy or it's like whatever. And uh, the, the, the most eloquent wordsmiths in any context or community will still confuse people. Because how do you explain a train without saying, oh, it's like an automobile. It's like this. It's like that. That's one of the most uh, powerful uh, things there are. So when it comes to fire, whenever you see that God has chosen his infinite wisdom to use a specific thing as an, an, as an analogy to a specific uh, attribute of God within the... You have to ask yourself, what about this thing made God say, I'm going to use this thing as an example, right? For example, the Bible says, uh, you know, we have to have the faith of a mustard seed. It's not the size of, because size is just a component of it. But then a question, if you want to geek out, man, it will blow your mind, is, okay, he says the gospel, what about faith? What about mustard seeds? Has this? And then you notice simple things like mustard seeds grow into the harshest environments. They go from the smallest to the biggest, right? They have the most, like, spreading radius. You begin to see all these things. You're like, oh, my gosh, God is a scientist. And that's why he used a mustard seed to do this. So there's three things when it comes to the physics of fire which I feel like are the reason that God has spoken about revival and our desire to be around this, which I want to leave with you guys as we go forward, as we continue on this task to being the people responsible enough to be entrusted with his revival and with his fire. So the first thing about fire, about the physics of fire, is that fire brings focus. Everybody say focus. 
Um, how many of you guys know that if, and I excuse this analogy, but I think it'll, it'll land true. If I were to bring someone over here, right, and um, wrap them in like a fire retardant like material, and then pour gas on them and, and set them alight, and I didn't tell them. How many of you guys know that 99.9999999999% of their focus will be on getting that fire off of them? Fire has the way of just recalibrating our focus, right? It's just wherever there is fire, and nobody that looks at someone that's on fire will look at them and be like, uh, what are they doing? They're just looking for attention. Why are they running around like that? Why are they dancing around and everything? It's for attention. No, because the world understands when they see somebody that's on fire, right? There's a, a, a trait attributed to Wesley. Some people say it's not. It's like whatever, but they said. um, he was in the middle of a revival, and people asked him, how do you do it? He said, it's simple. I get into the presence of God. I set myself on fire, and the world comes to watch me burn. The world is drawn. There is a bifocus, there's a bifocus that happens. The people on fire are focused on nothing but the fire, and the people watching the people burn are focused on nothing but the fire. I don't know what it is, but it's in us as humans. Whenever we see something burning, it's like, like moss to a flame. We're like, ooh, it's burning. And if it's a bunch of guys, then we're like, ooh, it's burning. Let's get drinks and throw meat on it and we'll keep watching this fire. Why? Because fire draws focus every single time. What I want to say is the moment God pours out revival and he starts by reviving you and putting a fire on the inside of you, it's going to bring a focus that recalibrates your entire generation. And if there's something that we need as the modern day church, it is focus on God, focus on his goodness, and focus on reconciling a world to who he is. The second thing is fire brings purity. It's a purifying agent. I love Malachi 3, verse 1 to 4, and this is what it says. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer the Lord an offering of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Listen, there's nothing that costs us more credibility with the world than Christians who walk in impurity. Christians who cuss and Christians that dabble in all sorts of sexual misdeeds and, uh, and, and then they claim their humanity as a, a, a pretext, as an excuse for their lifestyles. There is nothing sadder in this world than people who profess God, who hold, try to hold their Savior in one hand and their sin in the other. Purity. It is a non-negotiable for the people called by the name of the Lord. A mark of the Asbury Revival, when I was talking to uh, David Thomas, who was the main leader over what that looks like, a professor at the Asbury Revival, he says, hey, we believe that God kept visiting us because before you stepped on the platform to the side, they had this room called the Consecration Room where you would come in there and there were people that had been praying and they would pray with you. And right there you opened your heart and you say, Father, cleanse me and use me as a vessel. 
even for this conference before you went out to speak, you had to spend like an hour in the consecration room just laying everything before the Lord. And it brought such a recalibration and God is able to move mightily. I want to call people back to being people of integrity, people of their word, people of purity, people who love God and they love who God has put within them to run his covenant. It's not cool to be carnal. It's not cool to be worldly. You're not being down. You're not any of those things. You're undermining the credence of your testimony. Fire represents or brings fervency. That's another thing, right? The fervent effectual prayers of the righteous avail much. I don't care what your personality is or what your disposition is or what your Myers-Briggs is or what your Enneagram is. There are specific things, especially when you're praying about other people, which is called an intercession, that you only get through fervency. So you get into the presence of God and you lay a hold of his gospel and his promise that you say, I will not let go until you bless me. When God gives you the fire of his presence and the fire of his revival, you will see that fervency will be the operating speed, the resting heart rate of what God is doing in your particular community. And then finally, fire brings fear. If you don't mind, can we get the, uh, the keyboard, the, the, the piano, uh, whatever the, the cool kids call it over here, um, just kind of playing behind me. Fire brings fear. When you think about fire, right, it evokes fear inside us. And the parallel is the fear of God. The fear of God will bring revival, but most importantly, the fear of God will steward revival. I still remember there was a, a, a man of God, and he got into some trouble, and uh, he ended up in prison, and, and someone went to go visit him. And they were like, man, you had everything. You were one of the most prominent voices in our generation. God was blessing you. There was still ministry. It's like, so when did you stop loving Jesus? When did you stop loving God? And they say the, the minister with tears in his eyes is like, man, that's the thing. I never, not even once, when I was doing all these things, not even once did I ever stop loving Jesus. I just stopped fearing him. When we lose the fear of God, it's frightening the things that will justify and that we'll get away with. Because God encounters to meet people more than anything. He will continue to use our gift basically on momentum to touch the people around us. But it's time we became people that fear the Lord. People that relate with each other on the dynamic of the fear of God. We fear to do anything that would bring him reproach, knowing that on the other end of our sanctification and our holiness and our purity and our acting right when we should be acting wrong, on choosing the character of Christ when those people deserve the ghetto coming out of us, knowing that on the other end of all of that are souls waiting to discredit God based on my behavior. The fear of the Lord has to come back to our viewing habits, our listening habits, our family dynamics, how we raise our children, the promises we make to our spouses, who we vote into spaces of leadership, how we serve our commitment to this house, our giving, all of it has to be marked by the fear of the Lord. 
and that's how he entrusts us with his fire. And that's how we keep the fire on the altar burning because that's all we are. Fleshly altars created from the cradle of glory and encounter. And now we don't rest until we come back into that space. That's what revival is. Isaiah 33, verse 14 to 17. If you don't mind, could you stand with me? And here's what it says. It says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? It's someone whose confession and their lifestyle are inconsistent. It says, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? You were made to dwell with fire. You were made to live on fire. Fire is your birthright. The fire of God. The purifying, a fervency, giving, fear-inspiring fire of God is your birthright. That's why you desire revival. Because like a phoenix, you should be existing in the middle of it. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, men of no compromise, I believe that's why the fire couldn't burn them because it was their element. That's why God could walk with them in the midst of the fire. That's why the fire of the world and the fire of tribulation cannot harm you or touch you. Because what's on the inside of you is harder than what's outside of you. You can't fight fire with fire. See, I was addicted to pornography for over 10 years. It was the worst thing that ever happened, the most debilitating forms of pornography because that's what pornography always does. It starts with a little look, and then afterwards it always seeks to debase itself, so it keeps pulling you into the more and more because remember, the whole, the whole modus operandi of sin is to get the image of God so marred and diminished on the inside of you that you no longer see your father when you look at yourself in the mirror and so you self-isolate and you run from the redeeming love of the father. And that addiction was like a fire. If you've ever been addicted to pornography, you know what it is. It's a lewd fire. It eats your lunch whenever it needs to feed. You start, it fills with the fire. And that thing wasn't gone until the fire of the Lord came over my life. And you can't fight fire with fire. And as a man or a woman of God, never live a day not on fire for the kingdom of God. And you can ask every morning, you can wake up and say, Father, light your fire on this altar. A fire in my relationships, a fire. That's what happened in the book of Isaiah. I saw the Lord and he says, hey, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am unclean in my communion. I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. And what did he do? It says he took a, a coal from the fire and he put it and he seared his lips and he said, now you're cleansed. May the fire of God define you in everything that you are. Listen, he says, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who works righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be in the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. 
and they will see the land that is far off. See, fire purifies our perspective, and when we see him, we are transformed into the image of his beauty and his purity. And when the world looks at us, they see him reflected on us. And that's what revival is. So my call to you this morning is, um, if you don't mind, would, we can have the prayer team come up here. It's very simple. It's just for you to come back to a place and a space. And you can do it where you are. Or if you like, we need somebody to partner with you in prayer. But the call is a call to return to your cradling context, to the place of a creation and God's intention, a place where you live filled and marked by the fire of God and you spread that everywhere you go. And I know there's people in here to where you're like, I, I know where I need the fire of God in my marriage. Some of you are like, I've tried everything that I can, but I need the fire of God in my relationship with my children. And some of you guys are like, I deserve what's happening to me, but fire is a redeemer. It burns away the old so the new can grow. So if you're in this place and you want to partner with someone in prayer, I'd love for you to just take a second to come down to those prayer warriors. But if you're also in this room and you're like, no, this is between me and my father. I just need to come into a place of repentance because that is the mark of revival. It's the opening. It is the, the, the initial phase of revival. It's repentance. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, not to be religious, but to put you in a moment with your father, just go ahead and say, Father, I give you everything. Just speak to him right now and say, let your father... Let your fire burn me, Father. Let it mark me. Let it cleanse me. Let it revive me. Just ask the Lord for his fire in every area of your life. Some of you, it's health. You have a diagnosis that the doctor has said only the fire of God can come in there and fix that. That's what it does. That's how you cauterize instruments. It's through fire. Just speak to your Father right now. The prayer team is here. They're about to lead us into a song. But Father, I just come before you and I thank you for this moment of recalibration, of return, of being called back to the fire of God. I pray that it would mark their homes, their hearts, their spaces and place of work, their avenues of ministry. But more than anything, I pray that it would mark this particular community. That OKC community would be a community marked with fire and revival. I pray, Father, that you would set them ablaze, Lord. For you came to bring a fire and all your desire was to see that fire kindled. So as they speak to you right now, burn away the chaff and everything that hinders love. Mark them with the fire of your revival. Spend time with your Father in worship. God bless you guys. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.